The Politics of Sound with Ian Carnegie. Welcome back. My guest this month is a musician, a former teacher, and if the ballot goes the way she hopes at the end of this month, the next leader of the Liberal Democrats, Leila Moran. One of the most recognisable politicians to emerge over the last few years, her visit to the record shop has been hotly anticipated. But what albums did she pick? All this and more in this month's Politics of Sound. Leila Moran, a very warm welcome to the Politics of Sound. So, the starting gun has been fired, voting begins today for the leadership of the Lib Dems, and with it, the continuation of possibly the most extensive husting schedule I've ever heard of. How are you bearing up? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I'm such a people person that to not do this face-to-face, I'm finding really difficult because you know you read the room and I'm you know rah rah performance speech da 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 I love it um but I can't do do that so people uh can't see where we are but we were, we were chatting over zoom and there's a green screen behind me although I've got a, a lovely Oxford skyline behind me you can't see me uh Ian but I'm surrounded by by LED lights as well uh, if needed um so yeah we've got a little studio set up in my uh, upstairs box room, uh, which is making do for the leadership election. We've got 33 hustings. 33 hustings. You're sitting in your studio under lights. I'm sitting in my recording studio, and I think we're both bearing temperatures of about 100 degrees. Yeah, it's really rather warm. Yeah. Now, The Politics of Sound is a podcast which aims to discover more about political figures through, in part, their musical loves. And sometimes that love is peripheral. And sometimes it is essential. But for you, I think it's central. You're a musician. Of sorts. I mean, it was... I've, my family has always been very musical. My mother's Palestinian. And um, her uncle uh, actually founded a conservatoire, one of the first conservatoires in Palestine. And they've always been incredibly musical, but in a sort of classical musical sense on that side. And on the other side, my dad, uh, very much a man of the 70s, plays the guitar. And some of my earliest memories is of us sitting around with him finger picking things like, you know, Streets of London or something by the Beatles or whatever it is he might play. And we'd sing along. And so my very earliest memories are surrounded by music. Um, But I tried, as often young uh, people do, to play things like the piano. And I just didn't really get on. And when I was... How old was I? Christ, I must have been eight, eight or nine. I went round to one of my mum's friend's houses and she was a musician. And we went into her attic and it was amazing. It was just a treasure trove of different instruments. And I tried the French horn, I tried the violin and she played the cello. And and she she got me a little cello. Uh, I think it was a half size at at that point. And we started playing. And I just immediately fell in love. So my my first love in music um, that I played was the cello. And then uh, did that for a number of years and, you know, got to my grade eight and all the rest of it. But along the way, picked up 
singing and I'd always been, I'd always loved singing. Um, so I've got my grade eights in, in voice singing and in the cello, um, but then also picked up classical guitar. So all three sort of carried me through school and I was always in some kind of orchestra or choir most days of the week I would be involved in some kind of music in some form um, right up until really my first year of university and well to be honest the the bars of, of London took over at that point well of course it, it remains uh, it remains something that I just I absolutely love but you were a serious player is it true that you played with the Brussels Philharmonic? <laughs> now, that sounds more impressive than the truth. <laughs> so that very same friend of my mother's who actually got me into the cello and uh, sent me along my way. And I, I sort of went away from, she lived in Belgium. My parents lived in Belgium for many years and still do. And uh, when I moved back to Belgium after doing my physics degree at Imperial, um, I then reconnected with her and I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that stage. I was, you know, very much in the wilderness. I, I thought I had wanted to be a scientist, but actually discovered that I, I was really too much of a people person. I didn't really know how to marry the two. I ended up, by the way, doing physics teaching, which was the perfect combination. Um, but in this interim period, she said, well, there's this semi-professional orchestra um, and, you know, come and join. We're looking for more cellists. I'll vouch for you. If it gets too difficult, I'll help you through a bit of it. Uh, and so I joined for a few months. But sadly, that was curtailed um, partly because I uh, one day decided that I would jump off the stage um, into, so from the stage into to the stalls where the cello section was sitting sort of at the back um i was quite obese at the time actually i was uh, nearly uh, sort of 18 19 stone jumped off this stage and about halfway down recognized that that was a really bad idea um and broke my yes. leg so badly that i ended up in a wheelchair for three months so that sort of kiboshed the brussels philharmonic orchestra story i'm afraid i feel that in many ways that was an epiphany for you and i, I want to come back to that if i may but I just want to look at your science credentials and also the fact that you were a successful teacher. I think that educational experience you had played a very important role in your subsequent path into politics. Is that right? Absolutely. So I wasn't interested in politics at all when I was younger, which given how much it's a huge part of my life now, I'm sure a lot of people would, would find bizarre, but it was always around the dinner table. My father um, was actually part of what is essentially the foreign service for the European Union. It's now called the External Action Service. And he was you know, first in his family to go to university. He hadn't really lived anywhere else. And the family wasn't really sort of an adventurous family, but uh, ended up moving to Belgium uh, when I was one in order to join what was then the European Commission and then worked yes. his way up. So he ended up being an ambassador. So it was always around, you know, they, they'd have parties and they'd have dinners and I'm the eldest of four children so I'd be the one to get wheeled out while everyone else got to play um, and I would be forced to listen to these grown-ups having very important conversations about xyz and usually involved who was the American president at the time and what they were doing and meeting other other politicians and it was interesting but actually that was what my father did and at the time I was far more interested in music I was interested in science you know I, I read a book called the physics of Star Trek that got me into physics I absolutely loved it I had no intention of going into politics at all but then yeah. through teaching I discovered that actually in this country having lived in places like Ethiopia and Jamaica and Jordan and others that we have huge educational inequality in this country and that there are still children who are far more their outcomes are more linked to how much money their parents have yet we are a country that is rich enough that that shouldn't happen and that just absolutely made me drop 
whatever I was doing at the time. And I, I remember thinking to myself, this cannot be right. And I decided to become an MP. And actually, after deciding that I really needed to, to get more politically involved, then I chose my party, which is the Liberal Democrats, actually in a very geeky way by comparing well, the... Yes. Well, I think you use some sort of flowchart or grid to make your decision. Is that so? I know. It's really sad, isn't it? Well, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I did a grid of what the research was saying at the time versus what different parties were saying. Um, and then that's what landed on, on the Liberal Democrats. But actually, it was more than that. You know, and there's so many values to this party that... I think I was always a Lib Dem. I just didn't really realise. But I think that's that's partly why I have hope for the party, because I think there's lots of people out there who naturally identify with liberal Democrat values, but just don't know it. And, you know, having had years and years not interested in politics, I think that's one of the skills that I bring to the, the, the job of potentially being the leader of the party is remembering that most people actually don't really care about politics at all. Let's just talk about the challenge that you face and that your party faces. You've said that you want the Lib Dems to be more radical than Labour. Are we talking about Jeremy Corbyn Labour or the Keir Starmer Labour? I mean, what does Leila Moran radical look like? So I'm a radical liberal. And actually, the best um, time to perhaps think about, you know, when was this the case was actually under people like Paddy Ashdown and Charles Kennedy, because the left-right axis just doesn't fit liberalism. And it's been a really long time. I would argue, you know, we went into government with the Tories in 2010. And that period, whilst there were things that we did great, it also was a, a period where our own identity was slightly eroded. I think a lot of people by the end of the, at the 2015 general election just didn't really know what the Lib Dems had contributed to coalition. I think in hindsight, a lot of people would argue, you know, we were a moderating force and all the rest of it, but actually our own distinct identity was partly lost. And then because of the way that we had been bumping along the bottom in subsequent general elections and hadn't really made that big breakthrough, right up until Stop Brexit, people didn't know what we were for. But the problem with Stop Brexit was Again, it didn't really explain what liberalism meant. So what I'm trying to do now and the argument that I'm making to the party is that that's what we need to return to is a liberalism where it's a positive, progressive vision for the country that is different to what Labour and the Conservatives have to offer. It's bottom up. It's very much about that empowered citizen. You know, you as a person, you are my relentless focus and I want you to be free to live your life as you choose. But in order to do that, you have to have security, you have to have a good education, you have to be healthy. And so that's why we have a focus on public services. So it's a whole distinct way of looking at the world that actually is quite radical compared to the choices that people have at the moment. So that's what I mean by radical. But it's not left. It's not right. It's, it's something else entirely. It's a need you feel for the centre to be more recognisable and have its own unique selling point if that is the right term exactly yeah and and one of the things that people say to me who aren't that involved in politics and I, i'm absolutely committed to like listening to people again that's one of the things i think we've been doing wrong i mean our assumption is that the reason why people don't vote lib dem is because they haven't seen enough policy from us 
we need to turn that on its head. We have to start where people are. And what they say to us is that actually they just don't know what we're for. They know what we were against. We were against Brexit, but they didn't know what we were for. And that has to now be what we rediscover. What are we for? What do people want us to be for? How do you marry the two? And that, I'm sure, will lead to the electoral success that we crave. Whether we like it or not, personality plays a big part. And it, I think it could be said that you are you are a big personality. There is there is a presence to you, a, a media presence, certainly. Do you think that the Lib Dems have to take account of that to have a leader who can break through on personality as well as policy? I think having cut through in the media is undoubtedly helpful. And one of the things that I noticed quite early on um, was that maybe it's because I had most of my life outside of the Westminster bubble and didn't really care for it. And in a funny way, when I decided I, I wanted to really get into politics, it was very much a calling. You know, it was it wasn't a I, I wasn't doing it for myself. I was doing it for another reason, which is almost an intangible of just wanting to change the world. And when I was elected, I realized quite quickly that I was quite different. I was quite different to people who had, you know, done PPE at Oxford and then spent the whole of their lives working as researchers. And, you know, this was actually the, the trajectory of the MP that I was trying to replace and did replace quite successfully. And I didn't, I wasn't like them. And I think what that means is that I do get media attention. And that's a good thing for the party, because then every time that you are mentioned in something, every time that something you say is picked up, that's another opportunity to tell people what is liberalism. And I was talking to my neighbour the other day. I mean, I love talking to my neighbours because they're not political at all. They know where I live and they're just mainly there to make sure that, you know, knock on the door, have you, have you got everything you need? They're absolutely lovely. They were saying, where are the Lib Dems? You know, where, where have the Lib Dems been? this was a few months ago and I was like yeah you know that's their perception is you've got to have the media on side and you have to be able uh, to to work with them to get your message out because we just don't have that big money we don't have the same presence on the ground I think having a media presence is, is a critical part of what we should be looking for in a leader. Coming back to that personality and possibly the need to cut through with that your background is fascinating having what some may see has some elements of privilege within it. Your father, as you say, was a diplomat and you went to an exclusive private girls' school in your teens. But despite all of that, you have opened up in a very frank way, I think, about a whole range of personal challenges that you have faced and I think overcome. Do you feel that the public has a right to know as much as they do about you? Well, why not? I mean, the way I approach it is this is me and this is all of me. And yes, I, I went to a posh girls school. But the reason why I went to the posh girls school and I was the only one in my family that did um, was because we'd had a, a very transient upbringing um, because of my father's job. And it got to the point where actually we were living in Jamaica and I start, we, we had to start our own school. I was one of only 12 students in this high school that we'd started. And I was essentially schooling myself for the best part of a year. Um, and so we took the really tough decision that for my own educational stability, that's where I needed to go. Um, and then, you know, when I got elected and all the way through my life, if someone asked me a question, um, I answer it. And I understand that this is a strange thing uh, for politicians to do, but it's been the way that I approach everything that I do and openness and 
showing people who you are, I don't think is a, is a bad thing. I don't think it should be all of the thing. Um, and actually, I think what most people really want to know is not about me, but what am I and what would the party do for them? And that needs to be the, the focus. But I hope what it shows people is that also that they can trust me and that you know, if you are open and honest about who you are and your background, then when you then go on to talk about other issues, you might be saying something that is slightly against the grain. And there, that is the place of the Lib Dems, isn't it? Is to be that, that party that's saying the thing that no one else will say or take the position that actually is the right position, but might not be initially the popular position. You know, we saw it over Iraq as a really good example. Uh, we've seen it in the past. You know, the party always takes those kinds of positions. Actually having that come from a leader who is honest and open about themselves, I, I think is, is a good thing but leader or not I also want to be able to wake up in the morning and not have two personalities you know the one you take to work every day and then the one that you have at home I'm just myself and I think I hope people enjoy it Do you find it regrettable that in 2020 public figures are still in part defined by their sexuality? Yeah absolutely but I mean interestingly on that story so for those who, who don't know this story I earlier this year um, felt that I needed to sort of come out. I was in a relationship, uh, I'm in a relationship, a very happy relationship with a woman. And it was the, the first relationship that I'd had with a woman, having had boyfriends all my life before that point. And as you might imagine, Ian, that was quite a moment for me in my own personal journey. Uh, it was something that I had shared with close friends and family. And it wasn't something that I was necessarily hiding, but it wasn't given that the relationship at the time was less than a year old, something that I was ready to share very publicly just yet. But I had a, a call from uh, a news outlet that wanted to, to cover this and you know, made the point that, are you sure? Because this is not going to go down well for you. Um, but then also thought to myself, my goodness me, there are extended members of my family who still don't know. And that bought me some time. I asked for a week and I said, please don't do this story. I'm going to go and tell my family before you do, can you at least give me that if you're insisting you're going to do this? And did they wait? They waited, thank goodness. Um, but in the interim, I decided that I was going to tell my own story. And so I decided to, to speak about it. And I'm not going to let someone else define me. I'm going to do it myself. Having spoken to those members of the family, and there was a bit of a sort of a whip round around, you know, extended family to make sure that everyone knew and wasn't blindsided by it. Um, but overwhelmingly and this is the best bit of the whole story most people just didn't care so when i released it and i spoke about it and the vast majority of tweets the vast majority of people i mean some people had some lovely comments saying thank you for talking about it it allowed me to have a conversation with my parents that i hadn't felt able to and so in a small way i hope i helped some people but the vast majority of people were like and and that was great. Well, there was this almost comedy moment where people were diving for their computers to try and look up definitions of this term. But it's actually a word that has origins dating over 100 years, albeit with different connotations. Yeah. And I think I can't remember where I got it from either. It's one of those terms that has been rising in, in just sort of general society for a little time now. Um, and I think um, there have been a few celebrities, Miley Cyrus, and I think Cora Delevingne is now doing a, a programme about um, how she is a pansexual. Indeed. Um, I think because I had seen a few other people talking about it, I knew it existed. 
Um, but I also, incidentally, dived for the internet because I hadn't expected to have to talk about this publicly. And so I suddenly felt this need to put myself in a box when I hadn't really felt a need to do that before. And, you know, am I gay? Am I bi? Am I pan? What am I? I don't really know. So I was looking it up online. And the reason I settled on, on pan was simply because the definition itself for me felt very much like what I was feeling, which is it's a connection between two people. And that's the only thing that really matters. And that is the definition of a pansexual is it's a relationship between two people and everything else just doesn't really matter. Um, so I often say it's a, a newish word for an extremely old idea. And afterwards, it was quite interesting, the number of people um, who came up to me and go, oh, based on that definition, I reckon I am too. I'm like, right on. And that must be very rewarding for you. It is. I mean... Uh, you, whenever you reveal something quite as personal as that, there is always this moment of, oh my God, what am I going to get? And yes, there are trolls on Twitter who enjoy making fun of it. And I block them and report them to Twitter every time. And actually, fair play Twitter, um, they often take them down um, because that's just homophobic taunting and it, it has no place. Um, but I know that those are a tiny, tiny minority of people. And the vast majority of people have just simply been supportive. And it's lovely. And you know, if I've made life just that little bit easier for someone else who maybe was struggling to think about these kinds of issues and it allowed them to either explore it more with themselves or even have that conversation with close friends and family, um, all the better. Um, I'm in this world to help other people. That's my driving force. It's why I was a teacher. It's what I want to do with my life from start to finish in whatever guise and whatever hat I wear. And, and I hope that this has helped some people along the way as well. You've spoken of your battles with weight. I think you've used the term obese, indeed on this podcast you have, particularly during your student years, which drove you, I think, to depression. Do you see that depression is something born of the need or a need to conform in terms of appearance? And I ask that because I don't see you as somebody who is conformist. I see you as somebody who is trying to think outside the box. Or I think a lot of people may see you as that. Yeah, I think actually, I mean, interestingly, the, the, the relationship between my depression and my weight is it's very hard to sort of unpick um, because actually I think partly the weight was driven by other issues as well. And when I'd had some therapy around this, um, the thing that actually probably drove me to the depression more than anything was a sense of having to be perfect. And so, yes, that partly comes to what you're saying about conformity, you know, feeling that there is this way that the world wants me to be. And I, because I am doing it differently, I'm feeling like in some way that I'm failing. And that was a really difficult process to go through. It happened in my second year of university. It had an adverse impact on my degree. I was on course for two one first, and then after that it plummeted and I got a third um, which, you know, I'm proud that in my master's I got a distinction, so I clawed it back. But this was a student who uh, cried on the day that I got my A-levels because I got three A's and a B, and I was upset with my GCSEs because I got seven A-stars and four A's. And, you know, what about the other A-stars? So I think that probably explains some of it, which is I just had this sense of academically feeling that I always needed to strive for this, this absolute top of the class kind of thing. And then I get to Imperial, 
where, surprise, surprise, there's lots of clever people and uh, they were doing fantastically well. And I think that was more actually the driver of the depression. Um, but also, actually, my family suffer with anxiety and there is a, a genetic element to depression and anxiety as well. And it's never really gone away. Um, the thing that the depression taught me was how to manage it, was how to be resilient to it, how to recognize that actually this is a really difficult time and these are the things that I need to put into place. And it's not perfect, but I'm reflecting over the course of, you know, just the last few weeks, a leadership election is a stressful time. And there are moments where, as my team will attest, I will say, right, I need this afternoon in order to go and do some of my own looking after myself. And that's partly yoga in the mornings, which is diarized so that nothing's ever put over it. Um, I'm very, very keen to when I need them to seek help. Um, and I'm unafraid to talk about it because, it, well, why wouldn't you? If you talk about it, if you'd had a broken leg, as we already have, and uh, you talk about your physical health in that way. So why not talk about your mental health? I feel you've had to curb that perfectionism to some extent, knowing that you're going to be criticised whatever you do. Exactly. And all you can ever do is to do your best with the best of intentions. And so long as I am true to what I'm trying to achieve, and I'm doing it for the right reasons, and I've got great people around me, then I know that I will come out stronger at the other end. And I, I, I no longer see failure in the immediate term as being something that is a bad thing. For And you can't as a politician. Actually, the art of politics is to get yourself back up when you fail. And, you know, time and time again, people who, who do politics have to get used to failure. I remember having a, a chat to my grandfather who sadly passed uh, on my mother's side about me wanting to be an MP and sadly he passed away before he could see me do it and he said he took me to one side one day and he held my hand and he goes Leila I love you but are you sure you want to do this because politics means it's a life of failure but with great rewards when you then make it happen and the key is not to see failure as failure but to see it as a bump in a road that you sort of get over and then you pick yourself up and you go on to the next thing. And that's what resilience is, is you get up, you move on, you get to the next thing, you ask for help if you need a bit of help getting up, and then you recognize that you've learned and grown as a result of that thing that may be in the short term that you didn't want. So, I, you know, ballots have dropped today. I'm thinking about the next big thing that I might be taking on, which is the leadership, but I'm equally unafraid of losing. And... I'm, it's not that I don't want to win, I, I desperately want to win, but I know that if I don't win, actually even just having put myself into the fray to have dared greatly, um, and you know, Roosevelt had, a, had a, a big speech about this where you know, the man in the ring and all the rest of it, by having gone through the process, I know that at the end of it, I will have gained even for myself, regardless of the actual outcome. Now you've said that you like the big crowded room, the audience, you have this phrase, the rah-rah speech, that's what I'm good at. Is that some of the musician performer coming out in you, do you think? <laughs> Probably. If you speak to my mother, she'll remember uh, times when I was five, six years old, where uh, we've got some pretty horrific videos follow from that day, <laughs> uh, when my dad would sit there filming us and I would just be performing to Whitney Houston or the or something like that to the camera so clearly that kind of flamboyantness was in there 
in me quite naturally from when I was very young. But you can see that in your conference speech of 2017. You stand at the front of the stage, you ignore the lectern altogether, and there is this sense that you want to connect directly with the audience. It's a comfortable place for you, isn't it? It's a comfortable place, but actually one that I had to learn to be comfortable with. And I think it would be wrong, Ian, to give people the impression that you're just born this way and that anyone can stand on a big stage and just do it without feeling nervous and not have to learn it. It was actually something, the very first speech that I remember giving at conference, I honestly thought I was going to die. Um, I, I've never spoken in front of that many people before. I practiced it the night before and the night before that. I remember reading books about oratory. I've still got them, you know, and I, I will study great speeches and I will learn the sort of tricks of the trade, the rule of three, the making sure that you have contrasting, tell a story, all of that stuff. It's all things I've learned. And I think it's really important that sometimes you uncover the the behind the scenes stuff for people so that they realize actually some of this is because I really enjoy it, which is maybe the thing that you know, you can see from my childhood experiences is that I do really like that kind of thing. But to get good at it is a real art and a skill. And just like any performer is something that can be learned. So if there are, you know, people who are ever thinking, oh, public speaking, you know, there are studies that show that some people would rather die than do public speaking, literally in that order. Um, actually, it is something that you can, you can get over the nerves, you can learn how to do that rah-rah speech. And it is something that's achievable for everyone in that form that suits them the most. But that's fascinating. I think that's the scientist informing the artist in you. I read a book about it. (laughs) (laughs) I read a book about it and I, I actually to this day still have mentoring for it. So throughout this leadership process, I've had people as part of my team who are constantly positively critiquing what I'm doing, talking about, you know, you could improve this, you could do that. Did you notice this? You know, how are you structuring that? And it comes a point where it's not just about learning your lines. You know, it's not just about, oh, I've understood this bit of policy or I'm uh, going to now make sure that I say this thing first and this thing second. Actually, it becomes about more than words. It's more than the words. It's how do you effectively use pauses? It's how do you change the rhythm of what you're saying? How do you use your hands? Um, And those actors and anyone else and performers who are listening to this it's very 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 similar and in fact the people who help me with this actually have a a background in theatre arts more than they do politics well i think it's time for us to discuss some other performers now as it's time for you to go into the politics of sound record shop we're going to hear all about your musical loves you're going to pick three of your all-time favorite albums i hope you enjoy it i'm so going to enjoy this So, Layla, how was your visit to the Politics of Sound record shop? You've had a whale of a time, haven't you? I have. Oh, my goodness. I have I've walked down memory lane back to when I was a spotty teenager um, in uh, school at this time. And I remember when this album dropped. It was OK Computer by Radiohead. Which is a 1997 release on the Parlophone label. The year before I took my GCSEs. And as you can imagine, as a, as a teenager of 14, 15, um, this was seminal in the way that I viewed the world. It was an, a really, really important album for me. And it was introduced to me by my friends. Um, I'd come to England having 
uh, moved uh, here for boarding school uh, when I was 13. And it, I'd come with an American accent and terrible taste in music. <laughs> when you say terrible taste in music, what are we, what are we talking We're about? We're talking here? Celine Dion, Mariah Carey, you know, that kind of, I mean, it's not terrible. It's good. It's good ballad stuff. It's fine. They can't vote for you. You can say what you like about them on this show. And, um, and one of my friends uh, said, right, you are going to be re-educated. And I was t told to read NME and Melody Maker every week or whenever they came out. And um, then we got into Radiohead and someone introduced me to Radiohead. And there are so many incredible tracks um, on this. Uh, actually, one of the ones that is quite political is Fitter Happier. Yeah. A very short, uh, it's not even a song, it's Fitter Happier, More Productive. And th there is something about the whole album, which I still prefer to listen to from start to finish. Do you think the order of the tracks is important to you? Is it something like a book? It is to me. And so as soon as one finishes, I've heard, I've listened to it so many times that the next one starts in my head. And I know, I, I know each song from literally the first couple of notes. Um, but it's such an anti-establishment album. I wonder to this day to what extent I've ended up in politics and being really interested in politics because of Radiohead in general and the, and the, the way that actually a lot of their songs are really, really political um but I don't, i'm not sure we'll ever know but one a fun fact is that they originated from abingdon they did i now represent their hometown and in fact some of them still live here and i'd love to think they vote for me um although i'm too scared to ever actually find out well the band singer and guitarist tom york said with that album they were hoping to achieve an atmosphere in the music that was a bit shocking when you first hear it they wanted to attempt to recreate an idea of destruction in music almost like the climax of the beatles a day in the life it it stirs very strong emotions in many people, this album. What emotions did it stir in you and does it stir in you still? Well, it's a really hard emotion to describe, but destruction, I think, is, is one part of it. But it's, it's, it, makes me, it always makes me very pensive when I listen to this album. And there are moments of it where you've got that sort of roaring guitar and then there are, there are songs like Karma Police, which a lot of people will know. Yeah, big hit. And it's very lyrical. And very, you know, Tom York's voice is just stunning. Um, and there are some that, you know, I will do at karaoke. So no surprises. I quite enjoy doing at karaoke. Um, well, that would be great. You're a great singer. You've, you've got grade eight singing. <laughs> no, <laughs> I need my backing track. Um, but, you know, there, there are some songs in this that just are so beautiful in the way that the lines are that it's so easy to go from from one to another they have that epicness about it um so yeah I, I always find myself sort of going off into a bit of a, a reverie um, whenever i i put it on and it takes me right back to you know being very much in my head it's almost impossible to talk at to me while i'm listening to this album because i just can't because i go i go right in myself and often i come out the other side having had an idea it's almost meditative well, some people have, indeed many people, have subsequently felt that within this album, Radiohead were predicting a sense of alienation and social isolation that has become more and more a feature of our lives in the 21st century. Do you think that's true? That's a really interesting thought. I think, that, I mean, I think so much of what they were saying in this, particularly some of the narrative around, you know, um, such a perfect life such a perfect uh you know th there's there's lyrics in it that are very anti 
what everyone else wants you to be? And is it a surprise that at 14, 15, this really spoke to me? Um, but I, I do think that they were hitting on something which we are now increasingly aware of, which is that, you know, there is this one way that society wants you to be. And it's a really progressive message that's coming through in the lyrics, um, but also a really progressive album musically. Um, because it was it was doing all sorts of things that you weren't meant to be doing. Um, you know, the, as I said, Fitter Happy is a song that doesn't actually have much singing in it. Um, it's all guitar playing and and, uh, and you've got lots of piano going on. Um, and then there are there are other songs that that just really, really hit you in the solar plexus. And I think one of the reasons why people love songs like Karma Police um, is they do feel so like me against the man rage against the machine you know you're going to absolutely tear up society and start again and i think there is actually something in this album that's quite revolutionary that i don't think has ever totally left me um there are moments that the you know you get to to certain songs and you're like you know what society's not working we need to tear it up and start again um so i wonder if some of my my own revolutionary spirit is is very much linked to some of the lyrics in in radiohead in radiohead songs generally well as you know on this podcast we have our own house band and i'm going to join them now and we're going to do a performance of the first track from okay computer and that's airbag great song of sound band with the first track from OK Computer by Radiohead. That's Airbag. Now your next choice is a classic recording in the truest sense of the word possibly, recorded over 50 years ago and still regarded as one of the great interpretations of an essential work from the concerto repertoire. What's the album? So this is the Jacqueline Dupre recording of Elgar's Cello Concerto in E minor. It's a 1965 release on the EMI label, and I think also within that recording there's Janet Baker doing sea pictures as well. It's a very classic and famous recording. Yeah, and it was introduced to me by my grandfather. Um, I'd started the cello, and he'd 
he'd, al he'd always had classical music playing. It was very much his favourite type of music, which is, I think, very fitting for a grandfather. I don't know about you, but grandfathers like classical music. And, you know, I was there not so interested, but I'd started taking up the cello. And the reason why my, my father actually was quite keen on me taking up the cello was just because it's got slightly lower tones. So as I was learning, it was just less offensive in the house. Than, than the violin <laughs> from a beginner. <laughs> I remember him saying that to me. It's like, just do that. Don't do the violin. And um, this concerto, I remember hearing about hearing it for the very first time and just being captivated. Um, and I, I'm talking to you, actually looking at my, my cello now, and I've never been able to play it brilliantly um, because it is it's quite difficult to get right. The first, the opening chords are these these big chords played just on uh, the, the cello. It's all double stopped, isn't it, at the beginning? Beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's all sweeping bow movements. And Jacqueline Dupre, for those who um, don't know her, was, you know, actually someone I, 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 great, I greatly admire. And she did cello differently. I read her auto, uh, I think it was her biography, where she was being described as, you know, she'd play the cello and she'd play it so much from the heart and with so much emotion that she'd move around all the time and she was told you shouldn't do this. And yet she felt that this was stopping her from expressing her full self. And she was always a bit sort of anti-establishment in the way that she'd play the cello. And I don't think there is a better example of, of her and her playing um, than than this version of the concerto. Well, she was this amazing child prodigy playing concertos at major concert halls in her mid-teens. Yet just 10 years later, the dream fell apart after she contracted multiple sclerosis. I mean, was she, is she an inspiration to you both as a cellist, a musician, and possibly as a slight rebel? Yeah, without, without a doubt, um, I was influenced by her story um, as I was growing up. And uh, as I fell in love with the cello, uh, which is absolutely what happened, um, I got to know more of her works. It was through listening to things that she would play that I would then go to my cello teacher and go, can you teach me a bit of this? And I wasn't good enough really to play it with any <laughs> flair, um, but it, it just got me more and more into the cello because I found the way that she engaged with the cello I could see a bit of what I hoped I could be um, in the way that she played of course I'm absolutely nowhere near that level at all and never have been um, but she was absolutely inspiring um, and she also had you know she she also had a very flamboyant personal life too and she ended up uh, getting married to Daniel Barenboim uh, who uh, actually to this day leads uh, orchestras in Israel, Palestine that are bringing people together through music in order Indeed. to discover the things that they have in common. And actually there was another side to her story um, that I, I found really inspirational because that connected with my Palestinian side because of uh, my mother and also that side of the family that was also very musical. And there's a small there's a small part of me that hopes that maybe there were some people that he knows who knew members of my family and maybe in a funny way were connected. I mean, who knows? But no, it is. it remains to this day probably my my favorite piece of classical music and i will listen to it from start to finish and there's there's beautiful lyrical parts to it there's also you know very big orchestra parts of it it's very engaging um engaging piece and if people don't know it it's definitely worth listening to this version from start to finish um it's absolutely stunning and i, I dare you to not be carried away
Now, a number of people said to me when they discovered that you were coming on the show that your three albums would be rock albums. But I think it's only in this last album choice that you're really letting that love of that have free reign. What's your last album choice? Well, with your permission in advance, Ian, it's actually two because it's Use Your Illusion by Guns N' Roses, one and two. And they were, of course, released on the same day. They were? These were the first albums that I ever bought with my own money. <laughs> wow. That, that, that's a big thing which we've lost. People going to buy, saving up their money, going into a record shop and actually walking out with this thing in a bag. It was a big experience. It was. It was the cassette tape. It was the two cassette tapes I had saved up. Um, and so this was uh, 1991. Indeed. In fact, it's September 17 and my birthday is September the 12th. So it was my birthday money and it was my it was my my present to myself that I I'd, uh, on these albums. And I was a huge fan already of Guns N' Roses, partly because at the time, you know, there was the early 90s was very much the sort of zenith of this kind of music. And it was it was Guns N' Roses and it was Metallica and, the, you know, the big rock band. And um, it was really popular in my school. And we actually had a club. So there would be about 12 of us who'd meet uh, every week or so. And we would just sit and discuss stuff about Guns N' Roses. If you ask me now what the hell we were talking about, I have no idea. And this was the rock society, was it? So, yeah, and we were, by the way, I mean, we were nine. <laughs> <laughs> and and we were nine, ten. You know, we were young, um, but we absolutely loved it. And the first um, uh, song, I think, that was released off it was You Could Be Mine, which was the uh, theme tune to Terminator 2 soundtrack even more attractive <laughs> yeah so so and I, I think there was just sort of this big epicness that came with this album and i used to listen to it every single day i would listen to it on the way to school i would listen to it on the way back from school i would very often put it on my walkman and listen. i was going to say it had to be on a walkman didn't it, it was a walkman yeah and and there are some awesome awesome really epic tracks um coma i would quite often purposefully fall asleep to <laughs> just because there are moments in coma that are a bit you know the, the, that way that you know that there's one amazing bit in that song where you literally just hear the beating heart of the person as they're coming back to life and it's just so uh, so so amazing to sit and listen to in the dark while you're imagining but there are other songs in it that are just sort of are basically love songs. You know, you've got November Rain, which had that incredible video. And this is a time where VH1 and uh, and MTV were all anyone would watch if you were interested in, in, in music. So some of the videos were so epic. And November Rain is the one where, you know, he's getting married at the beginning and then his, his wife dies. And there's this incredible scene with Slash in front of this church on a windswept cliff somewhere right it's not overblown at all is it it's all very downplayed <laughs> <laughs> so i think there was certainly a part of it that was just just amazing but yeah no there is it's, it's another one of those albums where if you play it from start to finish i, I have to kind of it, it tells that that bigger story and whilst there are some songs that are are less well known it doesn't make sense to me unless it unless you try and play it all in 
all in its sequence. Of those two albums released on the same day, which would you say is your favourite? Well, of the two, I think Use Your Illusion 2, because I was thinking if I had to pick one, which one would it be? And I think it is Use Your Illusion 2, but I'm glad you've allowed me both, because that allows me to have November Rain, which is on Use Your Illusion 1. And it's almost like a catalogue of different musical styles. Yeah, no, it is. And it's. I think the range of it all probably set me up to, to a degree to then appreciate lots of different types of music. When I, I have to say, when I was delighted to... To, to know that we'd set this up and and when I was asked oh you have to pick three albums I've really struggled I thought you might in there could have been I mean Ella Fitzgerald and and the jazz standards that that really inspired me to to go into singing uh, could have been in here uh, Misty is one of my all-time favorite songs in her version of, of all time it could have been Fleetwood Mac um, there are all sorts of different and, and the eclectic nature of of what i love listening to i think is probably backed up by by an album like this because whilst on the one hand you think guns and roses and all you can hear is you know axel rose's voice uh, and the huge guitar riffs and everything else actually there is a lot musically in this album that is is really quite varied and down the line as I was growing up and this was very much a formative album for me I think it, it opened my mind to to other forms of music so when I'd hear blues I'd, I'd be able to tie it back to this and if I if I heard big 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 rock you know I've, actually uh, there's a lot of uh, rock that Guns N' Roses does that actually is a little populist you know this was a really huge hit at the time um, but uh, still is quite heavy, but not as heavy as some. So I find that there's there's quite a lot of other types of music that I can tie back to this album in, in various ways. Do you have ambitions to be a rock star, to play in a band like Guns N' Roses? <laughs> I just wonder. Well, get get me in front of a karaoke box and my, my go-to song is Sweet Child of Mine. When you're addressing all those people at, let's be honest, venues that are used for rock concerts at conference, isn't there part of your inner rock sensibility just bursting to get out? 100%. 100%. I also recognise Ian, it's not a good look anymore. Like, I can't really do that in a suit. Um, so I'll just I'll just keep that for me at home. <laughs> is that the uh, is that the Theresa May dancing thing that's put you off? Exactly. I think whilst, you know, in your own mind, this is a great idea, uh, I'm pretty sure that it's not going to translate. Uh, so I'm not about to go releasing my own music video anytime soon. <laughs> OK, well, I'm going to join the band on the piano now. We're going to play that track you spoke about, or at least a slightly curtailed version of it. We're going to do November Rain. Oh, amazing.
after overcoming many challenges within your life. I get the sense that this is a time of particular confidence, happiness and contentment. Do you think that's true? And if so, does it support your ambition? It, I would say that is true, actually. And interestingly, the, the politics itself, because there are people trying to trip you up, question you, who interview you and so ask you questions that you might not actually ever get asked in any other in other other profession about yourself it really makes you settled in who you are and i don't think i've ever had a period of my life where i've just been so sure of of who i am and what it is that i want to achieve and it is it's wonderful and i feel rooted and i feel ready for whatever life may bring and i'm also very open-minded about about what that would be um but yeah music will always be there and when I have times of great joy or times of trouble, the first thing I tend to do is to is to go into well, Spotify these days and put on one, whatever track it is that uh, is making me feel good or backs up my mood at that time. So thank you for allowing me to reminisce with you today. Well, it's been a huge pleasure. Leila Moran, thank you. The Politics of Sound. My thanks to my guest, Leila Moran, for joining me in the virtual record shop this month as voting begins to determine who ultimately will be the next leader of the Liberal Democrats. Is she destined to be the headliner or the support act? All of that will be revealed at the end of this month. The Politics of Sound is written and presented by me, Ian Carnegie, and joining me in the band this month was the guitarist, Jeff Spracklin. I hope you'll join us on the 1st of September when my guest will be the Conservative MP for Bournemouth West, Connor Burns. In the meantime, have a good month and we'll see you next time on The Politics of Sound. Mm -hmm.